0: And welcome to another episode of I'm with RJ, hosted by myself, Alec Rovitz, and the man, the myth, the legend, RJ. What's going on, man?
1: Yo, not too much, Alec. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, shitty weather by me, but you know, same old, same old, still kicking it. <laughs> what's uh, what's new with you this week?
1: <laughs> um, not too much, man. The, the pot plants in my backyard are growing. I'm going to go eat barbecue on the top of A-Basin tomorrow. Um...
0: That, that's all one can ask for in life. Yeah,
1: and the
0: Pot plants are growing. Yeah,
1: the pot plants are growing. You're going to eat barbecue in the Alpine and you're smoking on $135 ounce from Purple Dog Bud. It's all good, you know?
0: Yeah, I'll humble brags on this podcast only. For sure. For sure. <laughs> well, I guess today we have a really special guest. Uh, I think he's a man who wears many hats within the cannabis industry, and I'm pretty excited to, to learn more about all his ventures and things he's done within the industry, and I'm sure you are too, RJ. So why don't we uh, introduce who we got going on?
1: Yeah, so episode eight of the I'm With RJ podcast, uh, we've got Mr. Michael Manning. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Totally, totally. We're going to get into all the uh, the nitty-gritty of uh, Michael's past from the time he was in kindergarten all the way up until today, uh, <laughs> and... Uh, I think Mike's got a really interesting story. I think it's really relevant for the current times. You know, cannabis is, um, to a lot of us, always been a very political concept. um, And uh, the the times that we're in right now is really recognizing that that cannabis is very much tied to a number of social justice reforms that kind of transcend um, pot and, and really transcend race and and socioeconomic status. There's a a lot of reform that is tied to cannabis when you really look at it the right way. So, um, Mike, to start kind of in that vein, would you consider yourself more of a cannabis entrepreneur or a, um, I don't know, political activist, reformer, revolutionary?
2: Oh, I would definitely say I'm more of an entrepreneur. Uh, I mean, I've always been somewhat activist-minded. You know, I'm definitely... Uh, for all sorts of positive changes in cannabis, in society, all that stuff. But uh, I would not say that I've ever focused myself enough to call myself an activist.
1: Totally. And and I guess what I'm trying to get at is the concept that maybe by your cannabis entrepreneurship, you are actually an activist.
2: Well, uh, I mean, I guess you're referring to the fact that I'm part of the social equity program here in Oakland uh, with my distribution business called Jingubang, um, which is the weapon actually that the Monkey King carried. If anybody's familiar, uh, some people know it from Fortnite, some people know it from Yu Gi Oh or something like that back in the day. But uh, Jingubang is the mythical Chinese weapon that the Monkey King carried, and um, I have that as my distribution company in Oakland. I managed to get into the social equity program. Uh, to be able to obtain that license uh, because I was incarcerated in New Jersey uh, from 2013 to 2015 uh, after I got busted uh, bringing cannabis there from California and I've also been incarcerated uh, in China in 2009 I was incarcerated in Beijing for seven months after getting busted there with a couple kilos of hash so I've definitely uh, I've seen both <laughs> sides of the equation I've been locked up for it. I've been, you know, dealing on the streets. I've been, uh, now I've got a license and, you know, I'm, uh, trying to make a go of this whole legal mess that we've got in California. But, um, yeah, I've, I've been through a lot of different cannabis situations, you could say.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, where did it start? I mean, why, why cannabis? Why, why have you, you know, sacrificed three years of your freedom for this plant?
2: Well, I think, um, I mean, like a lot of people who started smoking in the 90s, I, I would have started smoking in the summer of 94. Uh, you know, smoking weed was just cool. It was just, uh, it was just a thing that I identified with in terms of my social group and the kids I hung out with. And then, you know, looking back in the future, I'm sure a lot of us potheads, and I am proud to call myself a pothead. Uh, a lot of us potheads could look back and elementary school or middle school and see the kind of people we hung out with and sort of see the signs that all of us were going to be future stoners. Um, so, you know, like most people, I just started selling a little here and there in high school just to get my own eighth to smoke. And uh, that continued on uh, into college years. And uh, i had a little delivery service in New York City for a little while. But um, I was kind of living the, the dual life that most people leave. For a long time where I was, you know, pursuing a normal life going to college and I actually uh, worked at NBC News for a few years. I used to work with Tom Brokaw on NBC Nightly News and because I was studying journalism and media. I worked at High Times also in that while I worked at NBC, I did an internship there uh, in college when I was at Rutgers and so this kind of dual world, uh, the, you know, living in both worlds, trying to live in the normal world, so-called normal world, and trying to live in the cannabis world, I was trying to achieve that for a long time. And, uh, I mean, honestly, the, the the time when I switched over from trying to live in both worlds to just living totally in the cannabis world is probably about the same time I started going to jail and prison for <laughs> cannabis. Crazy, crazy. Um, because it's not easy to, uh, I mean, I, I know a lot of listeners and, and you guys can sympathize, you know, sort of when you're growing up, you're saying, hey, am I going to be a, you know, you don't, you don't start off saying I'm going to uh, be a cannabis uh, uh, merchant, you know, my whole life. You might love smoking weed, but when you're a teenager, at the same time, you might say, hey, I might be interested in joining the Air Force, so maybe I need to quit this stuff or, hey, I oh. might be interested in being a Fortune 500 CEO. But, you know, the choice is narrow as you uh, get older. And uh, by the time I got locked up in 2009 in Beijing for hashish, uh, you know, I was pretty much uh, my choices had been made for me. I was uh, now firmly in the cannabis camp.
1: Totally. And and that's sort of how it goes, right? It's like uh, you end up up just falling deeper into it um, just by dipping your toe into it. And, and I think that's true for really anybody, whether it's somebody who's like, you know, both of us kind of had that start on the East Coast from going from just a regular person <laughs> to being fully um, into the cannabis industry on the East Coast. I feel like that's kind of what happens, Mike. You know, it's like you get so deep into um, the scene before you know it. And it, it really just it becomes your focus. I mean, I was in law school allegedly paying my way through it by running a, 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 you know, a boutique delivery service in New York
2: myself. You know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. So, yep, it's, uh,
2: I mean, I okay. guess that's the, I guess that's the, I mean, one of the main friction points I guess would be uh, the law, you know, I mean, once you decide to live outside the law, it's kind of, uh, I mean, it affects you as a person. And, and I mean, I'm sure that me and you were both people that, already had the kind of traits of somebody who might be able to live a little bit outside the law. But uh, <laughs> once you actually go there, you know, you, you find that you don't belong as much, say, in regular law abiding uh, society as, as much as you did before.
1: Right. Right. And, and you end up either in jail in China or you end up, you know, never leaving California.
2: <laughs> yeah. One of those things. Yeah, <laughs> for sure.
1: Right. So, I mean, was, was jail in, in, in China crazy?
2: Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, um, it's uh, I, you know, I ended up spending basically two years later on uh, incarcerated in the U.S. And I was seven months I was incarcerated in China. And wow. the, the seven months in China were way worse than the two years in America, <laughs> like by far. Uh, I mean, China, China is not like – I mean, honestly, the U.S., uh, not that I would want to be locked up again, but being locked up in the U.S. is soft compared to a lot of other countries where they're actually believing in like punishing you and that you're a bad person. And uh, whereas in in the United States, uh, you know, we're also, we're sort of sympathetic with criminals here in the United States, even if even if uh, we don't believe we are. Our country has kind of an outlaw myth and the romance of being a criminal, totally. that sort of thing. In China, there's totally. none of that. In China, if you're in jail, <laughs> you're an asshole, and they're punishing you, and everything you get, you deserve it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just just like, for instance, just for instance, you know, if you're if you're incarcerated in the United States, you're eating shitty hamburgers, like the kind they gave out to the kids who couldn't afford to pay for lunch when you were in elementary school or middle school. Sure. But in China, sure. you're eating, like, boiled potatoes every day with, like, salt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah um and and all for a plant that that may have been uh, used on Jesus Christ himself.
2: That's right. Well yeah. in uh yeah in China I mean in China they were uh they were not really ready for me. They don't have a lot of people <laughs> who are arrested for cannabis in China. Uh they're much more used to people uh getting caught with heroin or methamphetamines, things like that. And so after I got locked up there, it actually took them more than a month, even for my lawyer to find out, you know, what sort of charges I was facing, what sort of punishment I was facing um, because it was basically fairly obscure, uh, area of law. And, uh, also I, I was, I was, uh, always maintaining that all of the hash that I was caught with, which was 2000 grams, uh, That it was for personal use as opposed to uh, commercial use, which is a stretch, and uh, uh, you know they knew it, but um, they kept on interrogating me, and I kept on giving them my bullshit answers, and uh, eventually they decided to let me go. And I'm not so sure that it's because I was such a good, uh, you know, interrogee. I don't know what the right word is—a person being (laughs) Uh, interrogated—but they. I I had been working for the Chinese government when I was over there when I was arrested. Uh I had already lived in China for 5 years, 4 years by the time I had gotten arrested. And at the time I was arrested I was working at CCTV which is the Chinese national television station um which has many channels but I was working for their English language channel. So uh I've spoken to people in the years since then and people think that you know it's definitely very possible that uh, people from the Ministry of Propaganda, which controlled the TV stations, you know, could have put their thumb on the scales of justice in terms of not wanting to be embarrassed themselves that some foreigner they had employed had been selling marijuana or selling drugs or whatever. So uh, I got lucky in that situation, and they deported me after seven months and three days. They just told me to get my clothes on, get my shit together, and they took me straight to the airport, sent me to New York. So
1: the, the law in China, I mean, there, there was basically – you know, I mean, two thousand grams is a lot of hash.
2: Yeah. So the law in China, actually, I mean, I was right on the edge of the law in China, which I had no idea. I mean, I would just say I would recommend to anybody who's out there breaking the law that you at least know what law you're breaking and what the punishments are. Uh, even if it's just to be safe, you know. If you, uh, so, it turned out that the law in China was basically, uh, if you have more than two thousand grams, then you're guilty of being a drug dealer and you can get, you know, five, 10, 15 years. Uh, and if you have less than 2000 grams, then you're just a drug user. And you know, it's basically time served or maybe six months or a year or something like that. And there's no gray zone in China. It's not like the United States where you have a uh, possession with intent to distribute either there, you have possession or you're distributing it's, it's either, or it's black or white. So, uh, I had no idea that it was 2,000 grams, and so when I had been out, uh, I was actually, I mean, this is also a newsworthy sort of, uh, my my hash buying was also kind of related to the news uh, these days, because I had lived in Xinjiang, uh, the Muslim region in northwestern China, for three years, uh, from 2005 to 2008. And... It's you know right next to Afghanistan, Pakistan, all those places, and the local Muslim, non-Chinese population, the Uyghurs, they smoke hash, and uh, so I had been buying hash from them for years. And when I moved to Beijing, I kept on doing that and started selling it in Beijing. So uh, basically, I would fly back to Xinjiang, which is it's very similar, you know, as being in New York and flying out to California to get some weed and bringing it back to New York, um, and I. buy my kilo or then later two kilos and pack it up into a I would get like a subwoofer and bust out all the electronic guts and stuff it in there and I'd ship it to myself back in Beijing and it worked a bunch of times but obviously uh didn't work the last time um but I but I I just mentioned Xinjiang because it's in the news these days uh because they've you know have since uh the Chinese government has set up all these sort of internment camps for the Muslims, re-education camps and things like that. So it's kind of a forbidden region again, but, uh, uh, you know, sort of like Tibet where, you know, where they don't really want foreigners living there meddling around. But I was able to live there and and I didn't even know that they smoked hash when I got there. And the first night I got there, a British guy told me uh, that I needed to avoid smoking hash with the Uyghurs uh, if I wanted to stay out of trouble with the police. And, that was the first I heard that there was any hash there. So obviously I went the opposite direction.
1: <laughs> and, and, he, and, he was, and he was right.
2: <laughs> he was right. He was right. I mean, that was, uh, that was four years before I was arrested, but he was right in the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like a prophecy, right? It's like, it's not necessarily true, but it might
2: be right. Exactly. Um, and so. Uh, let me, let me yeah.
0: jump in here. Do you, uh, y- you must speak Chinese, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I speak Mandarin. Uh, decently okay i I was just had had me thrown off with uh i was in a chinese jail cell and i was like oh my god i I hope he like understood like everything they were saying to him
2: (laughs) well i can tell you uh i mean even though chinese jail really sucks uh it sucked a lot more for the people the other foreigners that i was locked up with who didn't speak one word of chinese or people even that had been arrested at the airport i mean i was I was locked up with a number of Africans who have been smuggling heroin into China, and they were arrested at the airport. So these guys, I mean, I really felt bad for them. They didn't speak one word of Chinese, never had a bite of Chinese food in their life. They live in a country where it's like 90 degrees all the time. Suddenly, they're locked up in Beijing. It's like 10 degrees. They're eating the worst Chinese food you could possibly imagine and just getting the full brunt of sort of Chinese culture in their face and not the good side of it, like the bad side of it. And those guys, I mean, they just like cry themselves to sleep. They were like, what kind of hell have I landed myself into? You know, I, I, I loved living in China, so I didn't have
0: that part of it at least. Yeah, that's lucky. It's crazy. So, Hey, I, I have a question. (laughs) <laughs> the, the name of your distro company are are you a fortnite player because hey listen me and you can hop on and rip some duos if you are
2: i'm actually an apex player so uh you know i know people feel strongly i was a pubg player before that but uh and i moved straight to apex I, I, fortnite was always a little cartoony for me but yes Jingu bong is an object uh, that is in fortnite uh some people also know it from i think dragon ball z um, but it's basically the Chinese Excalibur. It's the name of a mythical weapon. It's the staff, the golden hooped staff that's wielded by the Monkey King, who is uh, you know, very popular in Chinese culture. And uh, I, had, I had had a boring regular Chinese name the first year that I lived in China when I was teaching English, but uh, a lot of my students had crazy names. Like you would say, what's your name? And they'd say, Oh, my name is James Bond. Or my name is Michael Jordan. Or my name is butterfly. (laughs) Or my name is flying or something like that. You know, (laughs) I mean, these crazy words. And so I kind of thought my name was boring. And after my first year in China, uh, I, so I lived in in the region of China where most of the sort of, there's a classic story called journey to the West, which is the monkey King story. And all of that sort of action takes place out in Xinjiang, uh, where I was located at the time. And so I just decided to pick the kind of most exciting Chinese name I had come across. And that was Jinggu Bang, which is, you know, the Monkey King's mythical staff. And and believe me, every time I told Chinese people my name was Jinggu Bang, they never forgot my name. So it worked. There you go because it's yes. it's basically the same as somebody came up to you said their name is Excalibur. I mean, you would remember that guy and you'd be like that guy's name is Excalibur. Yeah.
0: Yes, you would. Yes, you would. <laughs> so RJ, RJ and Mike, I guess. Like, you know, you guys have been in the industry for so long and and Mike you in specific, you know, sort of being incarcerated multiple times. What's what made you, you know, after the first time getting knocked down? say, I'm going to keep going. And then after the second, the third, the fourth, because I honestly, if if it was me, I I don't know that I would get back up and say, Hey, I want to be in this industry.
2: Well, uh, certainly a lot of my family, my mom, you know, and my friends had the same sort of idea as you, uh, you know, I mean, after I, I was very lucky to make it out of China, in only seven months, but I actually, I never, I never went to trial. I was never convicted. They just decided that I was a pain in the ass and they deported me. And, uh, <laughs> so I ended up back in New York That's one of my- and I ended up back in New Jersey, uh, with, you know, with my family and, uh, then came out to, back out to California. And I mean, the way I was able to get back into it then was because I just, uh, I mean, I realized that, you know, cannabis was my passion, but, I came back to the U S and I had no record at all. So there was nothing holding me back. There was nothing stopping me from, from doing legal or illegal cannabis activities, which I did both, you know, when I came back. Uh, And so uh, I did work in New York for a year doing some SEO crap with a friend of mine, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't what interested me. So, and I had, so actually in 2010, I, I had never trimmed in my life and I just decided to go out to California and I had a couple connections for some trim jobs and I did a month uh, up in Humboldt and then a month up in Trinity, which were like the opposite, totally opposite experiences. I did like a old school Humboldt trim camp where, you know, they're like, the owner's coming. Like, everybody keep your faces down. Don't look at him. Don't talk to anybody about anything suspicious. Like, And where people were getting thrown off the mountain all the time for, like, being suspicious or people thought people were cops. And then, this, and then after that, I went out to Trinity to some, like, hippie farm, and it was amazing. And everybody, like, sat around the campfire every night and, you know, had a wonderful time. So, uh, you know, that's how I kind of got back into the, into the California legal market, although it's, you know, a long and winding road to where I am now. Uh, I had previously uh, worked at High Times as an intern, actually, back in 2003, so I guess that's my real introduction to the cannabis industry or the legal side of it. Uh, around the same time, I had a delivery service in New York, and, you know, and I'd always uh, sold pot and other things growing up, So uh, so that's kind of how I got into everything. And in terms of getting back, going back
0: to streams of income.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, (laughs) um, in terms of, in terms of going back to prison and, and then coming back out again and still getting back into it, uh, it was difficult. I had to, I mean, you really had to make a decision. I had to really make a decision for myself, uh, because as you can imagine, uh, 2009, I spent most of the year locked up in China. Then I came out and then 2010, 2011, 2012 I was in Oakland uh I started a delivery service called Hills Pharmacy back then uh won a couple cannabis cups and was you know things looked like they were progressing uh you know in a positive direction uh, at the same time I was also uh facilitating moving a lot of weight to the east coast uh you know and uh, on the illegal side and uh I got caught out there in New Jersey In July of 2012, uh, Bergen County, New Jersey, which is a real tough county. And I ended up uh, agreeing to a 10 year sentence in in my plea deal. And uh, because it was a state level uh, conviction, I ended up only doing two years incarcerated and the rest of it on parole. But as you can, uh, as I'm sure you can believe, when I got out of prison, there was very few there were very few people, you know, friends and family who were interested in seeing me continue to pursue my cannabis dreams
0: after I'd been uh, already locked up twice. (laughs) Yeah, listen, you don't have to tell me about Dirty Jersey. I used to live near Patterson. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, I didn't, I wasn't, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I was born in California, but grew up in New Jersey. And uh, I was, I just... When I came back from China and I, my life was kind of adrift and I headed out to California and did some trimming and things like that, I, you know, after I tri- – I mean, trimming doesn't make you rich, especially when you trim like a quarter pound a day like I do. So <laughs> uh, well, – faster, The world's slowest trimmer, God. I'm, yeah, I'm the worst trimmer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's like sometimes you learn things about yourself, about what you're really not good at, and I'm really not right. good at trimming. Wax on, um, wax on. <laughs> and, you know, I mean – I mean, a lot of these other people could do two pounds a day, so it's obviously something Correct. wrong with me. Right. It wasn't just the material. It's like if you
1: don't do a pound a day, um, there's and something so,
2: wrong with you. And, and even that. Uh, just through friends and, I, you know, I was connected to a few people who were kind of high up in the, you know, uh, black market sort of humble circles. And uh, through that, I was just able to start, I was able to get work. Um, first, I was transporting money and cannabis just sort of in California you know, bringing payment down to Los Angeles to meet people, things like that, just doing odd jobs for the, uh, you know, for the, for the people up in Humboldt. And after I'd done that for a few months, uh, sort of an opportunity presented itself where I could, you know, arrange to ship a bunch of cannabis to the East Coast and pick it up. And for that, I would be compensated, uh, you know, very well. And, And at that moment in my life, I probably had Thousand dollars in my bank account and no uh, no prospects of a of a of any sort of uh, good employment coming up and they were offering me something I, I want to say the first time I did it it was at least twenty thousand dollars in cash so you know it's not it was it's a hard decision I guess to make because you know I said to myself definitely I was like man I just got locked up in China and now I'm talking about going and doing something crazy illegal again I hope I don't get locked up again but I still ended <laughs> up doing it. Cause the money speaks loudly. So
1: given, given all of our background here, right. And, and and Mike, you know, you've gone in not once, but twice, not, not only here, but in fucking China <clears throat> again, like what really made you decide to pursue, you know, the social equity licensing, um, when it came available? I mean, what, what led to
2: that? What led to you becoming a social equity business in, in Oakland? All right. Well, um, I mean, I guess I would say that the starting point is that when you've been uh, actually convicted as a felon for cannabis, you know, in the United States, uh, it sort of limits your choices moving forward. I mean, the, the paths that were sort of open to me when I got out of prison were, you know, I could work at like the supermarket or Best Buy or some place like that, you know, uh, which was not interesting to me at all. Uh, I wasn't ready to like give up in that way yet. Um, or I could keep pursuing my cannabis dreams. Cause I, I guess it's particular about cannabis in that, uh, the more you get sort of locked up and the more you get, <laughs> you know, fucked up for being part of this industry. It's like, it's, it, it becomes more yeah. and more your only choice because, uh, There was nothing else would accept me. You know, nobody else would accept me. I mean, you know, I could try to get into some other industry and they would go, oh, this guy's a felon. You know, this (laughs) guy's this and that. But uh, actually in the cannabis industry, like having gone to prison for cannabis, you know, was somewhat of a positive. Uh, And I was still passionate about cannabis. And, uh, you know, actually I was in terms of, uh, I don't know what you say, in terms of your personal cachet or something like that. You know, mine was increased by having gone to prison.
1: Right. I I was going to say, you know, it's like I I always say, you know, uh, if you haven't been arrested for the plant, it's like kind of the dividing line. It's like, have you been in handcuffs because of the plant or no?
0: Exactly. And if you haven't,
1: it's sort of like, well, okay. You know, now you're playing with like, it goes back to the point you made earlier that outlaw culture. Um,
2: you know, yeah, I mean, I'm not knocking anybody who hasn't got arrested because you know, I mean, good for you, you you're smart, good for them. I, I, being arrested for cannabis, it's like I don't have you know, it's not like I was uh convicted of rape or something like that. It's like I'm happy to tell people that I was uh incarcerated, convicted, and incarcerated for cannabis. You know, I, I, I got no moral problem with that, and most people don't have a problem with it either, so um, and so. When I got, so let's see, I, I, you know, I, uh, I was released fr- onto parole uh, from New Jersey in February, March of 2015. And everyone told me there's no way they're going to let you transfer your parole to California. That's where you did your crime. That's where all the weed is. They know you're <laughs> like a guy who deals with weed. They're not going to send you back out there. But they were all full of shit. So right when I got out there, right when I got out, of prison uh, and on parole and I was living back in my parents' house. I applied for a transfer to California and, uh, you know, there's a whole interstate transfer system for people to transfer their parole around the country. And because my, actually it was because my dad lives out here in uh, the Bay area that I was able to basically say that I needed to be close to my dad for moral support and that he would keep me on the straight and narrow path and keep me you know, on, on my goals <laughs> and all the bullshit that you learn when you're in prison. Uh, you know, you're doing the program about how to keep on the straight and narrow path, kind of use that language to say that's what my dad would do. And right. they granted my transfer out here and boom, I was back in Oakland. Uh, you know, I, I worked a few cannabis places. I worked at Steep Hill. I worked at Magnolia um but it's always uh it's tough to it's tough to work for other people it's tough to have a job exactly when you're on parole because they kind of sometimes are looking like what you're doing and people in the cannabis industry are not really interested in having somebody around who the cops are going to want to come visit and see what they're up to you know that sort of thing um so i sort of uh you know had to find my the right spot when i got back out to the bay area i ended up uh, working for blue river uh, because Tony Verzura had just moved out here from Colorado and was just introducing his Terps and things like that, uh, and his Prana line, uh, into the California market. And I was really interested in the Terps at the time. And, uh, I, yeah, I had a little job for dope with uh, dope magazine at the time. And I just, I never interviewed anybody cause I was an editor, but I decided to set up an interview with Tony just because I wanted to meet him. And, You know, I was able to do that because I was had a little journalistic credentials and uh, we met up and I interviewed him. I wrote an article about him and uh, a few months later, he asked me to come work for him just sort of doing everything because he didn't have that many people working for him at the time. I mean, there was people in production wise, but he didn't have anybody sort of. Who could do you know things on the internet, to computer graphics, you know, file sure. paperwork, talk to people about business deals, all that sort of thing. And so uh, I started working for him and Blue River and uh, became the sort of general manager for a couple of years. But while that was going down, uh, the you know all the California cities were sort of figuring out how they were going to deal with legalization and and uh, Prop 64 and all that stuff. And so Oakland came out with their equity program and it was really like an amazing bit of luck that I was able to qualify for it because uh, when they were talking about setting up the program, the part that dealt with people who'd been incarcerated in the war on drugs, it had said something along the lines of, um, you know, anybody who was arrested or convicted for cannabis in Oakland. Um, But Then they changed it later on to be, when they actually published the law, they changed it to say uh, anybody who'd been convicted or arrested for a cannabis crime committed in Oakland. They added the word committed in there. And that actually let me get into the program because I wasn't arrested in Oakland or charged in Oakland. But when I was arrested in New Jersey, uh, all my paperwork said that you know, I had brought all the cannabis from Oakland, that I had been storing it in Oakland, but I lived in Oakland, et cetera, et cetera. So I was able to argue with the city and say, you know, I didn't get convicted of a cannabis crime in Oakland, but I certainly got convicted of a cannabis crime that was committed in Oakland, partially at least. Totally. Totally. Um, and so, and, and and for people who are unfamiliar, uh, I mean, cities like Oakland where that have equity programs, basically... Nobody's able to get a license unless you get involved in the equity program, which usually means uh, the bigger company becomes an incubator for the smaller uh, social equity companies. And so since I was already working for Blue River, um, Blue River basically got their license by incubating me uh, as well, first, I set up Chingu Bang, uh, as a distributor, uh, and I still distribute Blue River and invasive wellness products in Northern California. And then also later on, we set up uh, Next Level Delivery, uh, which is still going strong in Oakland, and uh, I have a piece of that as well. And, uh, you know, it's all due to the social equity program, and there are a lot of complaints and a lot of things wrong with the social equity program in Oakland and everywhere else. Um, but It's definitely benefited me, and I don't know, I wouldn't say exactly, you know, that the program was designed to benefit me, but through basically some dumb luck and some good circumstances, uh, you know, I feel like I've actually pretty strongly benefited from, from having this equity program here in Oakland.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in terms of like the hoops you had to jump through, I mean, besides just, you know, convincing the city that it was committed there. I mean, can you talk a little bit more in depth about, you know, the challenges that, that whether you or you've seen other social equity businesses in Oakland face, um, I know, I know we work with a couple different social equity companies that are part of the Ease Momentum Accelerator that are, you know, outspoken uh, users, um, but, sure. um, you know, I, I, know there's, there's been a widespread challenge, not only in California, but everywhere, you know, Massachusetts, other places are like trying to rewrite the way that works or enforce it in the way that
2: they thought the law was supposed to be, or that's fair. Sure. Well, um, I mean, you know, I guess it's difficult in any situation to give something to the have-nots, which is the noble goal of all these equity programs is to kind of, You know, whether it's reparations for the war on drugs or for, you know, decades, centuries of, you know, violence and and, uh, discrimination against uh, people of color, all all that, uh, all the terrible things that have gone on in our country in the last few hundred years. Um, So, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. The problem is it's very difficult to uh, give someone something when they have nothing. I mean, it's a very complicated problem. I mean... Uh, you know, we look in this country when you see someone who's successful in many arenas, often we notice that they come from a successful background or they've had successful parents or they come from a community where there's a lot of support, you know, and nurturing of, of their talents. And, you know, the equity programs are trying to set up something like that, but it's just very difficult to set up a business, even if you say, so, you know, the main thing, say, in Oakland is that there's no fees uh for the city of Oakland and, and some reduced taxes and things like that. But as anybody who has, you know, started or run a business uh, knows, I mean, it would, of course it's great to pay less taxes or to pay less fees to the city, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you need, right. you need it's right. not, it's not, ju- that's not the key to a successful business, although it certainly helps.
0: Yeah, uh,
1: that's, that's 10% of what needs to happen.
2: Exactly. So, So the problem is that, you know, and everybody realizes this, and so either you get situations, which I hear about a lot of, but it's not my particular situation, uh, where companies sort of set up an equity applicant for them to support, but they, in the end, they own 95% of it. And it's really just a front for them to get their license. And the person who right. was the equity applicant sort of, you know, gets a few pennies each month, you know, to, to keep signing the paperwork and telling the city that they're in compliance, but uh, it's not really setting up the equity applicant for a, a lifetime of success or for multi-generational wealth or all the sort of things that, you know, that people would like. Um right. But sorry, I, I lost track. Of what the hell I was saying? Uh, it's all good. Oh, no. so, okay, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in my so, so but in my situation, um, you know, I was in a good position because I was already working for a cannabis company as the general manager, right? right. And so, uh, yeah. To get set up, it, it was not it, to get set up was not so hard. I mean, I did get lent some money from my incubator, which I ended up paying back in the end to get a van. But I mean, that's also why I chose be, to become a distributor because uh, distributors have some of the lowest setup costs. I mean, I couldn't become a cult, a social equity cultivator would require you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of dollars to set up a grow space and get all the you know stuff you need and pay all the people you need. And so, it's no surprise to me that most of the equity companies are kind of, uh, you know, just on paper or they're, or they've failed or they don't really exist because it really is. I mean, really, if they had said, you know, you don't have to pay taxes, you get a license with no fees and here's a million dollars. I think that would have been a lot better situation. (laughs) Right. Right. And and,
1: and, and yeah, the, what the law misses is the, you know, and you, you call them an incubator, but an incubator gives you money. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I don't know any, any incubator like consider, you know, like think about uh, yeah, they- Canopy Boulder, right? Like it, it's like that the, you know, the, the word inter- incubator and accelerator are intertwined at this point. But um, anybody who, again, is not investing in the businesses they intend to support is really just wasting their time as, as you're pointing out in cannabis or anything else, right? Like if you don't give the business the money it needs to run and grow, what do you even bother wasting your time incubating it for unless you're going to take over the business and run it as just another branch of your business? And that's what's happened. Um, that's what's happened in Oakland. It's happened in San Francisco. It's happened all over the place. Um, it's happened with retailers. It's happened with. I mean, it's happened every way it can happen throughout the supply chain. Um, and it's unfortunate. It is. It, it's unfortunate that more people who – should have it don't the people that have it are misusing it i think it's i think it's the most unfortunate thing is the city couldn't find or the state couldn't find grant money um the state operates a a, you know tens of billions of dollars surplus every year and you can't find a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for 10 businesses in six or eight cities it just seems ludicrous to me you know
2: yeah and i mean i don't know if the if, if, if there was just sort of a conflict from the beginning where they had to really compromise and weaken these social equity programs so that they were pretty ineffective. But I mean, just some, something I like to point out to people is that, so, so I, I reaped the benefits for a couple of years of the Oakland equity program, but actually now they have kicked out both of my companies from the equity program because I made last year more than, uh, more than eighty percent of the median income in Oakland, which totally doesn't make sense at all. Because they're trying to set you up to be a successful company, then if you start paying yourself a salary, then they kick you out of the program. Like it just, you know, it doesn't make sense at all. Uh, you should be in it for right. a few years uh, and reap right. the benefits for a few years. So it's like uh, there there, there's a, there was a lot of things that weren't thought through well, and uh, right. I would be surprised if there's very many successful equity programs and. I mean, obviously, it's somewhat a perversion of the original intent. If you know, as I believe, I'm probably one of the person, the people in Oakland who has benefited most from the equity program. And yes, I was a cannabis prisoner, but I, but in reality, I know that these equity programs were really set up to be targeted more for people of color and people who have, you know, been targeted by sy- systemic racism and problems in our society. Not somebody like myself, who you know, I, I made my mistakes, and I and I. uh and I was a prisoner of the war on drugs, but you know, it's not because of the color of my skin or my religion or anything like that.
0: Sure. Hey Mike, let me hop in here. So w- what does distro look like in California? Like how hard is it to cover California and what are those hoops and hurdles you still have to jump through to be successful?
2: Well, as everyone knows, California is a huge state. Um, and so there are a lot of difficulties in covering California. I mean, if you're just talking about L.A. and the Bay, it's not so bad. Um, and that's where I think something like 80 or 90% of the people in California live in those two areas, the Bay Area and Los Angeles, sort of, sort of greater metro area. Um but down south, when you're talking about San Diego or Palm Springs, you know, things that are getting sort of towards the, the farther away from Los Angeles, and then the north uh, of California is just really a huge pain in the ass. It's not, it's not a problem to do San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, even Modesto, Sacramento, uh, Santa Cruz. They're all pretty you know, located within an hour or two of each other. But it's really difficult to cover places way up north, Humboldt, uh, Eureka, or, or further east, like Reading, uh, Weed, places out, places out there, and those I don't know how those stores even get supplied, really, because for me to deliver products there, it almost never makes sense, and I'm always trying to find somebody else who will deliver my orders there because we don't have that many orders in those regions. Um, but you know, somebody places a two thousand dollar order, and it's going to take you eleven or twelve hours round trip to get there and back. It's not you know, it's not worth it, right?
0: Right, totally. So, we're big uh, supply chain management guys on this podcast. So, I guess maybe let's dive into that a little bit. So, like as as a distributor, like how much visibility do you have into, I guess, uh, downstream businesses that are placing orders, and the whole to do compliance, regulation, and even local and uh, municipal laws that you know, govern each sort of city within California that has legal or don't, doesn't have legal cannabis?
2: Um, I would say that, I mean, for me personally, uh, it's not so much the regulations, although those can be a pain in the ass. I got a letter from the city of Los Angeles, uh, a little while back, t- you know, saying that I owed them a bunch of money and it's like, you can't operate and live in a state where each city is going to say, Hey, I saw you were in my city now you owe me a chunk of money. We're all, you know, charging the shit out of every cannabis company that passes through our town. So that kind of stuff is a pain in the ass for sure. Uh, you know, paying with local taxes and things like that, which I feel like the state should just, you know, disperse, uh, in some sort of, you know, scheme to the cities. Uh, but honestly, the biggest pain in the ass for me is dealing with each dispensary, has just crazy different rules about when they can accept deliveries, when they get payments, what times they're open. And it's really impossible to operate. I mean, they think uh, they, they treat distributors like they're the only business in the world. But I mean, you got some places that are open, let's say, from they're open for deliveries from 10 to 5, but they close from 11 to 2 for lunch which is really like the part of the day when you really would make your most deliveries right in the middle. There's other, there's other places, there's other places and, 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 uh, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there's a, a place out in, in Modesto where they'll only accept deliveries from 7am to 9am. Uh, and you know, I live two hours away, an hour and a half away. So unless you're trying to start, you know, leaving at 5:30 in the morning to get to these places and then sort of waiting around to get to the other place where they only take it afternoon uh, it's really difficult to organize your life uh, just having to deal with all their bullshit. <laughs> and so I would I would just encourage dispensaries, all of them, to accept deliveries during opening hours and that's the end of it, you know?
1: <clears throat> that that's a hilarious thing. We're we're open from ten to five, but we're closed eleven to two. So when the yeah, fuck I know
2: it's it's very difficult. <laughs> okay, and then anyways. For cannabis, it's what it is. <laughs> and and then it's, you know, and getting paid. I mean, that's a whole another pain in the ass. I, I mean, I love, I love every business that sends me checks in the mail. I mean, I love getting checks in the mail. But as you know, sure. cannabis businesses, a lot of them only want to pay in cash. And so it's like, first I got to take the product to you. Then I got to come back, you know, 15 or 30 days later to get the money. But then I'd say a third of the time when I show up even then – you know, they throw some other hoop at you or they just say it's not ready or the, you know, the accounting person is out to lunch or whatever. So it's, there's a lot of just like chasing around money, sending emails, making phone calls, do sending you, texts.
1: Do you think that uh, that electronic or cashless payments like ACH and stuff would eliminate some of that hassle or do you think it's just the nature of the beast? Like no matter what the solution was in place, if, if you could – I mean is it just because nobody wants to put cash in the bank or they, they can't get a bank account or or
2: what is it uh, I don't I don't think it's I mean certainly if everybody had banking then it would be easy but I don't understand any dispensary that can't write a check <laughs> nowadays I mean some dispensaries will even write checks from a personal account or and it doesn't have I don't care where the money comes from it doesn't have to come from your dispensaries you know it doesn't have to be a check with your dispensary's name on it I just want the money and so uh I mean, I figured out ways in most places to figure out ways to get it done. But, um, I, I, I mean, I think half of it is complications because of banking and all that stuff. I think the other half of it is just these dispensaries don't want to pay and, you know, know that they can keep on stringing you along for weeks and weeks or months and that cannabis companies are used to not getting paid. And so, uh, you know, I just hope that culture changes as we become more and more professional over the years.
1: You you know it's funny and I don't Mike, I don't know how much and this is sort of a question sort of sort of a question, right? But I don't know what you pay attention to the other markets in, in for instance, Massachusetts. Um one of our good buddies, Bill Houston, who's our, our CSO for Outspoke, he worked for uh Berkshire Roots, which is a vertically integrated company that sells and, and buys from other companies in Massachusetts. And he said that when they get a delivery, they go through it um with the person that dropped it off they count it all check it against the packaging receipt they pay it whether it's cash or check right there on the spot and that's the end of the transaction and that's the way it's done in
2: massachusetts so like, yeah, that's my favorite i mean cod is that's my favorite yeah, kind of thing of to, i love it it's it's over you know i don't have to right. like, it's like and, and, and then when you add on the distances like we were talking about before that's a whole nother right. layer. you're you're not only chasing someone down for 500 bucks you know, sixty days after they were supposed to pay you, but they also are two hours away or three hours away. You know, it's it's just like you're like, I don't want to drive out there to get this money, but I kind of need the money. But I, don't, I wish there was a better solution.
0: <laughs> totally, totally. Um, Alex, do you have any more questions? what's yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Blue River Extracts. What? What is this? This uh, snow? All right. So I'll do. I'll I'll, I'll
2: try my best with. I'll try my best with Blue River. Uh, I mean, I worked with them a long time, but I'm, I'm definitely more of the business side than the uh, you know production side. Sure. But I do know a lot about the products they've made. I, I worked uh, for them and with them for several years now, five, uh, three or four years. But the, So the snow is uh, basically Blue River settled on um, a couple of techniques for the first extraction, which is either sifting or making uh, cold water hash. And then later on, it gets pressed into rosin. And so I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, the THCA sort of rosin technique, but basically yeah. you take, you know, rosin that's been pressed. And I I, you know, I believe it has to be the kind of rosin that will butter out after if you leave it out for a few days. You let it butter out, then you press it again. And basically that separates the rosin into THCA, which is, you know, white, chunks that are left behind in the, uh, you know, in the filter and sauce, Great. which is in the sauce, which comes out when you squish it the second time. And so those are kind of the basic building blocks for a lot of Blue River products. The The THCA is powdered into snow, but it, so you get a, you get a strain specific solventless, uh, you know, 95 plus percent THCA product, which is amazing wow. because you know, a lot of people have been using chemicals and distillation and things like that, which you know are all fine. But uh, this is just mecha- just a mechanical process, just using yeah. a lot of pressure and yeah. some heat, and you still get up yeah. to, to the to the nineties in terms of the THCa percentage. And so, and it's you know it's white, and so uh, they powder it, and they I, you know somewhat jokingly named it snow for for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, you know, the other products also that Blue River sells also basically come from that same process the the sauce is what's the sauce is what comes off when the thca is left behind and then that sauce gets mixed either with more terps um to make other products or uh mixed with other thc you know other thcas I, there, there's endless combinations that make all the blue river kind of products i mean that's about as deep as i get into it uh sure. but 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 it's just sort of blue river's uh the, the way blue river works is just kind of separating things out into the almost like molecules, cannabis, the, the, the most basic building blocks of cannabis, the terpenes, the THCA, and then recombining them into uh, sort of innovative products that are different from what you might get just from natural rosin or hash.
1: Totally. So I think, I think for those listeners out there that uh, probably have no fucking clue what Mike just said, basically it's a mechanical separation process where, where either hash or flour sometimes are, are pressed, and a goo comes out of it, and then it's pressed again, and some more goo comes out of it, and what you get is THCA on one side, which is basically pre-cannabis, pre-THC, right? So as we be heated from an acid, converts, and, and that's when you get high. If you're to consume THCA on its own; it's actually has some marvelous healing propensities.
2: Well, uh, so that's and that's exactly what, um, and, and so the THCA. Also, so so the other side of Blue River is uh, what used to be called Prana and is now called Advaita Wellness, right. which is the wellness line. Right. So actually, all of those products also go into the wellness line, uh, and they sort of complement each other. The THCA goes, into we have THCA sublinguals and uh, capsules, you know, which like like you said have great healing properties, and we also have them in various ratios with CBD, CBN, um, and and uh, you know they all complement each other and. Uh, even we have – we've had a lot of uh, great success recently with our Blue River strain-specific capsules, um, mm. papaya, uh, uh, grapefruit ponzu, a bunch of different uh, you know actual strains, and they're 25 milligram uh, capsules, but see, when you take, a, say, a papaya capsule – you know, 10 minutes later, you're getting turt burps like you ate half a gram of,
0: you know, $120,
2: $150, you know, high-end papaya, uh, you know, rosin or hash. Um, and those are actually made from the chips that are left over for making the rosin. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, an old-school mentality uh, of using all the parts uh, that are valuable and not just throwing them away like a butcher or, you know. Yeah,
1: yep. Native, Native Americans.
2: Exactly. We try to end up with the least waste of the cannabis, uh, you know, as possible. And the other thing I was going to mention just that's interesting about the, the THCA is when you get it to that point um, where it's 92, 95 percent THCA just with mechanical separation. Um, you can actually take that THCA and decarboxylate it. And basically, you've, you're left with a totally solventless distillate. Uh, you know, so there's so many things that you can do once you break it down into the building blocks, uh, that it's just, that's what Tony Vazura likes to do. That's what he has fun with. And that's sort of what the, uh, you know, why the blue river products are so unique, uh, and also so high end because there's a lot of steps and, and processes involved in each product.
1: Yeah. It's a, a forefront. It's a trend. It's a luxury. It's some quality medicine. I mean, it's what you want to see out of a cannabis company. What did you say the new name in Prana was? Uh, it's called Adviso Wellness, A D V E S A. Okay, got it. Um, Mike, why don't you tell us about your newest projects?
2: All right, so uh, we'll go from the high end to sort of well, the middle end. Uh, <laughs> even though I have picked a low end name, but so uh, my newest project is called Schwag, uh, which is uh, for those of you unfamiliar, that's what we called shitty brick weed growing up uh, in New Jersey, and I'm sure all over the country. You know, when I started smoking in '94. Uh, the weed still had, was still probably 75% seeds and stems <laughs> and you had to find the little green bits to, uh, to assemble them and, and roll up a joint. Um, but so I'm taking that name Schwag and I'm, I'm not, believe me, I'm not selling swag. but I, in this day and age, uh, with our new economy, with COVID, with everything, I sort of, uh, realized the need and, the market need for more inexpensive cannabis products uh you know blue river and all the flower brands you know connected and stuff that i love to smoke they're all great but you know uh you can only spend 90 or 100 dollars on an eighth or or 150 on a gram of concentrate uh so often uh and i like to smoke more than that so basically i came up with the idea of swag as a brand which will sell, uh, you know, very economical but very high-quality cannabis and um, trying to uh, just figure out all the ins and outs of that and how to, how to uh, you know, meet the needs of the market. But uh, the first batch of swag dropped uh, a week or two ago and just a small batch just to test the market. And, you know, it sold out immediately. And even in the shops that bought it up, they said they sold out of it within a few days because those were – they're basically – Indoor ounces thats that retail for $150, which is way below, you know, what uh, what most product would, you know, usually you'd be paying, I don't know, $350, $400 an ounce if you're trying to get uh, indoor flowers uh, through a legal cannabis delivery service or a dispensary. And so, you know, it's smalls and things like that. But I just realized that there's definitely a need for people who, you know, want to roll blunts or smoke all day. You can't be smoking you know, $90 eighths all day. And so no. I'm, I'm just uh, working with growers who have, you know, sort of trim and smalls and things like that to get rid of. And I'm trying to purchase that in bulk and, and clean them up and separate them and, and, and get the stuff that's still, you know, good and smokable to the customers at a good price. And, uh, you know, it definitely seems like that's, uh, you know, hit a specific need with the market because people love smoking good weed, but it's just too expensive for the most part at dispensaries
1: yeah exactly you know that, that's funny again the, the the paradigm or dichotomy between you know Colorado and California I mean it, <clears throat> there's a spot by my house pretty different spots by my house <clears throat> that don't need to be named because they're not paying but um, one has like $115 ounces out the door smalls but you're getting things like GMO and like quality strains you know good smoke it's just smalls but you know it's great to smoke on another spot it's like all their ounces are 160 or less out the door Probably have 15, 20 strains, you know. Everything is quality in terms of smokeability. It's not going to sell as an exotic anywhere, um, sure. but it's quality smoke, and you've got sixteen cha- strains to choose from. Um,
2: well, there's not much like that, in, there's not much like that in the California market. There are a couple of brands, not at all. Uh, you know, I, I would say Old Pal and um, but Old Pal, Old Pal is shitty
1: weed. It's it is real swag. You're yeah, talking about heady, and yeah. mine is, I think mine that, is
2: nicer quality. Right. I, so basically, I'm, uh, you know, in that perspective, I, I'm competing with old pal and trying to beat them on quality, but trying to kind of sure. sort of come close to their prices. Uh, the other one is uh, uh, sorry, Pacific Stone. You know, I hear a lot about. Uh, yes, yeah. you know, they have um, decent weed at decent prices, and and I'm just trying to look for the the best weed for the money. Basically, you know, something like you know actually a good deal that I can I can make money selling it, but that also when Consumers get it at the store. You know they they don't feel like they're they're getting screwed. They feel like yeah. they got a good deal as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that originates from your roots in the East Coast, right? Just hooking up your friends so you can smoke.
2: Yeah, I mean that's where I started. I I wasn't selling, you know, weed to make money. I was selling seven eighths so I could smoke the eighth one. You know,
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> Same. <laughs> That's exactly the same way I got started. Well, I know where to get it, and it will be cheaper. Yeah, I
2: can – you know, I just right. got you – that's know, so all I got to do is raise the price $5 on each of my friends, and then I get a free bag. So, you know, those are the right. – that's the kind of uh, cannabis economics I like to think about. And, uh, totally. and just the swag name I chose as, as, as just sort of tongue-in-cheek. I mean, the packaging has got a yeah. picture of a brick of, uh, you know, an old, like yeah. – Mexican brickweed, you know, with stems and seeds <laughs> no. on the front, and I have to, I had to put a little note next to it that said it's not the actual contents, but actually it's pretty good uh, what's in there. And so I'm just trying to work on uh, mm. securing more supplies for the swag brand, and uh, you know, hopefully, totally. hopefully kill it that way.
1: Got it, got it. So if any of our listeners have uh, smalls in the legal market, in California,
2: yeah, you know where to go. Definitely, definitely, and uh, you know it's out there. And it's just a sort of underappreciate. The growers don't want to deal with it. They want to get rid of it because uh, they're focused yep. on their buds. And, right. uh, you know, usually it goes to extractors and things like that. But some growers, their smalls and trim sort of mix is good enough that if you're willing to put some hours into it, you can actually separate the good smokable stuff from the stuff that needs mm-hmm. to go to the extractor and, 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 and uh, make some money doing it. Got it.
1: Are, are you able to sell that sort of uh, quote-unquote waste product to an extractor in, in California within the, in the supply chain?
2: Oh yeah definitely that's the I mean that's the business model is to acquire right. sort of smalls and trim that's high quality in bulk and separate out the smalls uh, for people that want to smoke them and and, and then sell the trim on to extractors and things Yeah, because it makes sense. you know, it makes it, you sense. know just uh, a little more value out of the out of the product. But it's, it's not easy and, uh, dealing with cultivators and everybody is, is always like, uh, it's not easy and people are always changing their minds and things. So it's, uh, I'm working on it, but it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's hard to get people pinned down in this industry.
1: It is even with a contract and a share and, uh, your name being med men, Yeah,
2: you Yeah. Know? God MedMen. I mean, you know, I mean, what a, with a joke that it is, I mean, honestly, I, I, you know, I know you guys talk a lot about, um, you know, funding and and, and and raising capital and all that sort of stuff. I've never been in that world. And, you know, I, certainly companies like MedMen and a lot of companies out there, you know, sort of give that whole, uh, that whole process, a, a bad name amongst people, you know, who've been in cannabis for a while. And we look at a lot of failures like Ignite or, you know, these brands that seem to have, a hundred million dollars out of nowhere and then poof, they, they disappear.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think there are, you know, people who are like yourself who are, you know, just slowly building their empire in the legal market and and have done about it in a, a way that's made sense for you to get in. Um, that was way more approachable obviously than a lot of other people have seen it, you know, but there, there are so many geneticists and, and people that have made the best strains that are being sold in dispensaries right now who aren't even in a legal market anywhere.
2: Yeah. They, you know? they're, not, they're not benefiting yeah. at all.
1: No. And, and, and you know what, the, the, again, I always look at things on the foot too. It's like the market isn't benefiting either, right? The patient's not benefiting, the, the, benefiting, the customer's not benefiting by getting quality weed. Um, that that may or may not be well priced in california in your case it is thank god and others it might not be because of the genetics behind it but still you know the, the customer has no access to these things and so it's for it to remain underground, um, I mean, I'm cool with that. You know, that's how I got here. That's how you got here. But it, it's at the same time. Well, it's not the same, same as it limits- was.
2: It's not, the, you know, it's not the same as it used to be. No. And now, so, but, now I, it's sort I, of I, fucking I, both, sides of the, <laughs> both sides of the market. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Exactly. It, it limits the growth of the real market because those people aren't able to play, you know?
2: And, and I mean, and also, I mean, giving up all the respect to, to, to the black market and everything. I think that's a traditional market. Uh the, tra- the traditional market is not what it used to be either. I mean, the, the, the traditional market no. gave us all the amazing strains of the last 20 years exactly. and everything, you know, all the rosin and shatter and everything that didn't exist in 2000, basically, that, you know, are dominating the market now. But, uh, you know, all the, all the wind has been taken out of the sails uh, of the traditional market. And, you know, the legal market also hasn't right. been able to get a full head of steam either. So it's kind of it's one of the most difficult uh, questions? Because I mean, as a businessman, uh, you know, I'd love to see the traditional market crushed. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's just like in my interest. You yeah, know, but yeah. then, but then, as a human and as a stoner, like it's like that's the way we came up. Plus, like you know, a lot of these legal rules and the way it's set up is bullshit. So it's kind of like hard to support that with you know with uh, with a full uh, heart yeah. or whatever. So it's kind of, I just don't know. I I don't know what the answer is, but California is pretty unique. And Colorado, I'm sure has the same problems, but I mean, California had just such a super deep entrenched traditional market that, uh, there hasn't been, you know, a huge amount of buy-in to the legal market. Uh, and so I don't know. I just feel like it, it, we're in a kind of a middle, a middle place where nobody's quite benefiting.
1: I I think it goes back. I was just on with, we, we, podcast 007 James Bond episode is with Danny Danko. So if you just, this is your first podcast, go back and listen to, well, obviously all of them, but, but 007, um, Danny Danko. We were, we were talking about, uh, idea that the market really didn't transition, right? It went from, um, prop 215, which was, you know, bring your shit to market and sell it and do the deal yourself and whatever, whatever, and, and into this really hyper-regulated place where there are distributors and all these other things. Right. Um, I think, colorado's transition from medical to rec was much smoother i don't think they really lost the structure that they had they might have you know added metric or they added more people or whatever but um, a lot of people who were sort of double dipping if you will um were able to grow brands and then not have to double dip anymore um especially once rec came along sure Again, I'm not going to name names, but like I can think of several brands who are, are well established at this point that no longer backdoor product because they don't need to. Um, and and so again, I think because the transition was such a slam from everybody can do anything, it's all good, throw your sash, blah blah blah, to okay now there's no high times cannabis company anymore, right? Like you have to pay for your judges kit. Yeah. You know, it's um. It, it, it's, it's just been really unfortunate the way the trip market transitions happen in, in my opinion. And I think that's, what's led to so many people being left out in part, you know, obviously lack of licensing, you know, the cost of license. It's, there's so many, there's so many fucked up things just to get in. And then, like you said, you drive through Los Angeles um, to get a taco and they're taxing you, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh,
2: I mean, the amount of money that these cities think they can make from counties and right. the state, but I mean, Mostly cities, I guess, uh, that they think they can make and take from cannabis businesses. It's like they, they you know, they think we're, a, you know, just a, a wallet for them to open. I mean, I don't know if you know about the situation in Oakland, but in Oakland, there's basically a five to ten percent local cannabis tax, and it's basically caused many uh, manufacturers, especially, to leave Oakland. I mean, that's why Blue River has. Blue River is actually down in. Uh, Los Angeles now because there's a better tax structure. They moved the business down there. But I stayed up here with the distribution. Um, and I don't know if it's political leaders don't understand that. I mean, I think they do understand it, but I, I feel like uh, they've just put so much into the, put so much stock into uh, having money from the cannabis industry to fund various projects that they're unable to, you know, save our industry by reducing tax or at least save the industry in their own towns. Right, right. It's a constant battle with the taxes. That's for sure. And they just don't understand. I mean, just my own one of my own personal pet peeves. And I don't know if there's any other distributors that are out there, but uh, cities that tax distributors like they tax retailers—they're eh, just out of their mind. Most distributors are working on, say, you know, a ten percent margin or something like that, and then the city wants to come and tax you five percent off the gross. You know they're working on. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll give you half my money or three quarters of my money. No problem. Every year, I, I'm sure I can stay in business. Uh, and they just don't seem to understand yeah. that. So it's like, yeah, at least, uh, it's, it's,
1: uh, yeah. They, they look at businesses as, in, excuse my language, to all the ladies. But they look at, you know, it's 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 uh, it's a, a pimp uh, pimp type relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah, fuck, yeah, um, yeah. you're there fuck, to you work pay for me. them and give. Them the fuck. <laughs> Yeah, fuck you, pay me. Yeah, fuck you, pay me. And I mean, no, who's the big, you know, the biggest mafia in the world? It's the
2: government. So it is what it is. Yeah. But you know, trying to stay, trying to hang in here. But yeah, oh yeah, uh,
1: oh yeah. Okay, well, well, why don't you, um, why don't you shout out your websites and social media and stuff so where people can find you, find your products, all that good stuff.
2: All right. Well, uh, you can find my website at jingubang.co. J-I-N-G-U-B-A-N-G um, anybody who wants to hit me up, feel free to hit me up. you send me a direct email M at jingle And, uh, I got to shout out blue river and Advisa wellness who, you know, got me my start here in the cannabis industry in Oakland. And Hey, I'll shout out Danny Danko too. Cause I've known that guy for a long time. And I know you guys just did a podcast with him recently and, uh, shout out to you guys for just being interested in the industry. And, talking to people. And I hope this all comes out. I hope it helps some people get a better grasp of what's going on in this crazy, crazy cannabis world. And I hope we survive 2020. And, you know, I'm looking forward to 2021.
1: Well, yep. As we figure it out together, I hope we can help some other people navigate it and, you know, save some, uh, save some years in their lives or something like that. Save some money maybe. Who knows? Yeah.
2: Well, uh, (laughs) thank you. And uh, yeah, I guess, I guess uh, my advice to anybody out there would be, Don't get involved in the cannabis industry if you don't know what the hell's going on because it's a crazy world and, you know, it's not for amateurs.
1: No, it's not. No, it's not. Michael Manning, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, that's it. I'm
0: with RJ. That's me, Alec Rovitz. We'll see you guys soon. Peace.